Welcome to Narratives and Nightcaps. In today's very special bonus episode, we're talking with author Nicole Deeker. Nicole is a writer, both freelance and of fiction works. She's also a teacher and musician, hoping we might touch on those a little bit later. Her fiction career kicked off with the biographies of ordinary people. She's published in Obsolescence, a collection of short stories about, quote, horrifying and fantastical interactions with technology. Very intrigued by that. And right now, one of her projects includes the Larkin Day Mysteries, a series that is just about to get its third narrative with Shakespeare in the Park with Murder coming out at the end of June. And Megan and I got a bit of a sneak peek and got to read this. And we're so happy to welcome Nicole to the show today. Thank you all for having me. I am so happy to be here. I'm so excited about this book and I'm loving the opportunity to get to talk to people about it. Well, we can't wait to talk to you. I've been looking forward to this for weeks, for weeks and weeks. And even better, just to like, like cherry on top of all this, you picked our drink for today. So Megan, what are we drinking in honor of Nicole and Shakespeare in the Park with murder? Yes. So uh, Nicole had an excellent. So at first, we'll say we're thinking, you know, maybe an Iowa-esque beverage, but who wants that when you can have a cocktail that triggers the same thing as the book, pun intended. So <laughs> this is called the Revolver. And uh, Nicole, I actually just used your recipe that you sent. So it's from a site called SeriousEats.com, and we can link that as well. But it is a beverage that is pretty bourbon heavy. So any bourbon drinkers out there, um, two ounces of bourbon is recommended, um, a half ounce of coffee liqueur, uh, two dashes of orange bitters, and then for garnish, some orange zest. Um, and then if you wanna make it fancy, the directions say that you can even um, like flame the orange twist to give it a little extra smoky, you know, zestiness out of it. So. Um, put all of those together in a chilled cocktail glass and you're ready to go. All right. Cheers. Friends. Cheers. Cheers. I will say that when I make this, and I first had this at a restaurant in Vancouver, in Vancouver, um, British Columbia. And as soon as I tasted it, the reason I love this cocktail, people often ask me how much I am like Larkin Day, my detective heroine. And the answer is not very much, except for the coffee thing. So when they served up a coffee-flavored cocktail, I was all like, no, this is it. This is my drink forever and ever and ever. <laughs> that said, it is a very strong drink. So if you're making it at home and you don't want to get a little bit too tipsy, take a shot glass, one shot glass, and fill it two-thirds with bourbon. Fill it the rest of the way with Kahlua or your favorite coffee liqueur. Put it in OJ ice a little bit of water if you want and that way you get all the flavor of the drink without taking two and a half shots <laughs> yeah basically no, yeah <laughs> mm, anyway but that's my thought on the revolver i love coffee and that's why i like this drink i will oh. say that is something i picked up on right away because i noticed that your other characters are tea drinkers and Larkin is very much like, no, 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 I have to have my coffee anywhere I go. Where is the nearest coffee? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love it. 
I can relate. I just earned 15 golden beans at my local coffee shop. They're going to give me another, another free drink, another free drink. But that's oh enough gosh. about that. You don't need to. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Larkin. Also love her name. Hopefully we can get to that in just a little bit. But so this series started with Ode to Murder and then like, subscribe and murder. And now, like we said, Shakespeare in the Park with Murder. So Nicole, do you want to tell us a little bit about this third story? Sure. So this third story can be read on its own. If you haven't read Ode to Murder or Like, Subscribe, and Murder, you can read the third book on its own. That said, you'll get a little bit more out of it if you've read the first two first. So Shakespeare in the Park with Murder takes place at a summer Shakespeare's festival. And there are a lot of these, especially in the rural Midwest. I worked at the Illinois Shakespeare Festival for a couple summers, for example. and. People have been doing Shakespeare in the park for a very long time, you know, in part because Shakespeare is free and parks are inexpensive. So Larkin Day, our, our hero, our heroine, has been invited to guest direct a production of Romeo and Juliet. She, like me, has a theater background. I guess that's the other way I'm like her. She uh, she has also gone to theater school. So she gets, she gets hired, <clears throat> pardon me, she gets hired to guest direct this production of Romeo and Juliet at this outdoor summer Shakespeare festival. And as the title suggests, there is, there is a murder. There are actually multiple murders in yeah. this one. This is the highest body count in any of my books thus far. <laughs> but, but, it's, but you shouldn't read this just for, for the, the blood. And there isn't even that much blood. Um, the reason to read Shakespeare in the Park with Murder is because it's funny and it's about a group of people trying to make something interesting. Shakespeare festivals, it's like the best of theater and the best of summer camp at once. So if, you, if you're a theater person or if you're a summer camp person, you're going to have fun reading this book. There are also a lot of jokes. There's at least 10 jokes for every drop of blood, I would say. I mean, you know. <laughs> Oh, the I did laugh out loud. Yes, I yes. I did the, laugh out loud reading mm -hmm. this. So, and and I was reading a lot in airports and on airplanes and everything. And so everyone around me got the good old. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I mean, if you're into something, if you remember the Miss Fisher murder mystery series, for example, and how fun it was, this is set in contemporary period. It's actually post pandemic, if you're, or post first wave pandemic currently where we are now demic um so so it's not set in the past it's set actually right now they they reference that this is the first time they're doing this shakespeare festival in in three years like mm -hmm. many people are this summer so so that's it but it's got that miss fisher feel it's got that only murders in the building feel that's right it's only murders in the building yes. right? yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so so that's what you can expect plus theater plus summer camp plus some dead bodies hanging around. Dead people. Yep, that's cool. <laughs> Maybe a dead body. Can we talk about the setting for a second? So I know yes. you both are in the Midwest, and I know that the Ode to Murder also, you know, 
we it's in Iowa, but I guess why did you pick Iowa as the setting and the Cedar Rapids area? For me, I mean, it makes my heart really happy every time I see that mentioned, but it's just not a very common setting that a lot of authors choose. This is correct. I mean, Cedar Rapids is what that movie <laughs> yeah, there's a a Ed Helms movie about yes. Cedar Rapids, and I don't think it did very well. No, no, no it not, didn't. No. <laughs> so, so I grew up actually. I grew up about a 20 minute drive from where I am right now. I'm in Quincy, Illinois, and I grew up in Canton, Illinois, across the river. And my parents, who lived in Canton and were associated with Culver Stockton College for years. Um, eventually, eventually ended up in Mount Vernon and became associated with Cornell College. Um, so after I left the Midwest and bounced around from Seattle to Washington, D.C., you know, to Los Angeles, all these places, sort of bouncing around, seeing what else was out there, I, I wanted to come back. And because my family at the time was no longer in Missouri, but had moved over to Iowa, I went to Cedar Rapids. I had been in Cedar Rapids many times, you know, I'd visited for holidays. And I had seen what had happened, you know, after the flood in 2008 and the renovations and all of this. And it looked like a really interesting place to live. And I found out that that was true. And the truth is I would have stayed there. Um, I ended up in Quincy because my partner lives in Quincy and we have a house in Quincy. But we keep we we actually visit Cedar Rapids at least once, if not twice a month. We sang with Orchestra Iowa the Verdi's Requiem that they did last spring. We're here all the time. We keep talking about moving out here one of these days. So we treat it kind of as as the big city that we visit very, very often. But when I thought about where to set a story, I wanted it to to set it somewhere that was meaningful to me. And I wanted to let other people know how fantastic this area of the country was. They talk about it even in the second book, Like, Subscribe, and Murder. They talk about how there are more opportunities now in, in this part of the Midwest, particularly in the eastern Iowa corridor, than there are in many areas of the west coast and the east coast that have become oversaturated. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a very lengthy explanation, but the truth is that I really liked CR and I just wanted more people to like it. That's my goal. Get more people to move there, but not so much that you jack up the housing prices because one of these days I'm moving back. That's right. Cool. <laughs> I fully support that and completely agree. Everyone should know how great it is, but not too many people because we don't want it to be. Yes, ruined. <laughs> so. we do not want this to be Dallas Fort Worth. Right. No, 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 definitely. I not. just, I loved the, like, when they specifically say CR, because, like, yeah. that's what we call it. Like, oh, anyway, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm from Marion, technically. So of I'm course. in the, and Brie is from Robbins, technically. So we're, mm -hmm. we're in the suburbia, but, sure. um, you know, any, like, anytime my husband and I are, or, you know, we're talking with our, like, high school friends or whatever the case is, we're like, oh, yeah, are you going to CR or whatever? So, I just love the very specific language that I can relate to specifically, but I think a lot of other non-Midwesterners might appreciate it as well, or you know, especially the Midwesterners will appreciate it because it's not Chicago and it's not, you know, Des Moines, not that Des Moines making headlines anywhere either, but you know, it's not one of those larger known cities um, that other people would already know kind of off the top of their head. 
so you know the area, you're very familiar with it, but for this book and the other Larkin Day mysteries, what kind of research do you do to get the story ready? Sure. Um, so, so a lot of these stories are based on experiences I have already had which means that the research is not so much looking things up in books, but it's going back to old emails, photographs, diaries. I am a, I am a diarist. Um, <laughs> so going back to what it felt like, what, it, what I was thinking at the time and asking myself what someone else who had a different perhaps personality, different needs, different goals, different ambitions, but the same environment, how would they respond to it? So, when Larkin goes into that church basement to sing with this choir at the beginning of Ode to Murder, and there are, you know, Corral Midwest, for example, in Cedar Rapids rehearses in a church fellowship hall space, right? And so I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about how excited I was to go there, right? To be in this church, sitting on this folding chair, singing with this group of people, because I really wanted to be there. And I thought, okay, so if, if someone didn't want to be there, what would they think? Oh, folding chair, that's uncomfortable. Uh, church, uh, couldn't find a better space. Oh, it's hot in here. There's no air conditioning. <laughs> grumble, grumble, roar, right? So all of these things that I didn't mind, someone else with a different personality, different needs, different goals would mind. So that is that is my broad answer to your question of how I do my research. I think about what's happened to me and I think about how someone else might react to it. Do you then bring your different backgrounds, experiences, and knowledge to all of the different characters? So I know Megan and I were talking about this, just obviously Larkin and, and Ed know a lot about music and theater. Annie knows a lot about finance. Elliot is very technologically intelligent. So are these all different elements of you? Um, They are not precisely. I am lucky enough to have had many different experiences over my life thus far. I've, I've been a personal finance writer, for example. I've been a piano teacher. I've been a choral accompanist. I was a church organist for a while. I've taught Shakespeare. I've directed Shakespeare. Um, I have not actually done much computer programming, but my partner does. So I ask him, all the programming questions, you know, I ask him, I ask him, does this joke work basically? Um, and so, so yes, I do populate my characters' minds with things I already know. That, by the way, if I were a freelancer, that would be the pull quote. I do populate my characters' minds with things I already know. Um, so, which is why you don't see anyone who is a baseball player, for example. There's sure. no baseball player in this book yet. But you do see in the second one, there's a fitness instructor. I used to hang out so much at the Cedar Rapids YMCA. They say, oh, Nicole, Nicole. And they kept saying, oh, Nicole, Nicole, you should teach a class. I'm like, nope, too busy. You should teach a class. Nope, too busy. But I did all of those Les Mills classes over at the Cedar Rapids YMCA. And I became very familiar with the process because I actually thought about teaching for a hot minute. <laughs> And so when it came time to create a teacher who was using one of these systems like Les Mills or like Peloton, where it's all got to be the same in every class around the world, I also had that breadth of knowledge to, drink, to mm -hmm. bring to it. 
So once again, a lengthy answer to what could otherwise have been a short question. Hey, no, we're here. You can see I've, ar I've already consumed a third of my drink. <laughs> if we're doing the math, that is one third of a shot because I only put one third of a shot glass in here and filled it up with OJ and a bit of water, just a bit. Yeah. But any hoop. <laughs> <laughs> so that so that's a little bit of your quote research, I guess. But yes. then, what would your writing process be like for for this book or any of your other books? Um, I think it's the writing process between freelance and then fiction is probably quite different. So, what is your process like for the Larkin Day mysteries? The process of freelance writing and the process of fiction writing are actually more similar for me. They may be different from other writers, but I am okay. I am an outliner. I have I have um, eight Larkin books that will be written. Of, well, I guess this is number three. There will be eight and they are all outlined. Oh, my gosh. I'm um, so impressed. So so my freelance work Sometimes the outline is provided to me by the client. They say, here's the title, here are the subheads, here's the information we want you to put in each subhead, go for it. And others don't. So I would make that outline myself. Here's the title, here's the subhead. And this translate very, translates very easily to fiction. Here's the chapter. Each chapter usually follows a three-act structure in miniature, so the book follows a three-act structure overall, but each individual chapter also has a first event, a second event, a third event, and this rise-fall, rise-action, right? So, so that is easy for me. Well, no, easy is the wrong word. The process is easy. Uh -huh. Knowing what to do in terms of if I want to create an outline, here is how I create it. That's the easy part. Deciding what to put in the outline, what happens in each chapter, knowing that there needs to be three specific events with rise, fall, rise, action, that's harder. So that's the part that that sometimes takes more time than you realize. And, and I think when writers come up with this writer's block, they say, I can't write because I don't know. That's the part they're stuck on. I don't know what is going to happen next yet. Right, having a guide, I think my brain functions that way as well. I think my brain functions like a bit of an outline. And so I'm mm -hmm. sure that having that all mapped out would it would ultimately make it a lot easier, even if it takes some time to get that outline put together. So how long would you say it takes from start to finish for one book, for one of the Larkin Day Mysteries, start to finish, how long does that take? I am contracted to pr produce one 60,000 word novel every six months. Okay. So that is the answer. It takes <laughs> about, um, and when I say I have all eight outlined, I really only have the top level outline. I don't have them outlined at the chapter level yet, for mm -hmm. example. So the first thing I'll do is start the chapter level outline, and that takes about a month. And then I write, write, write for about three months, and that's about 20,000 words a month, which I can do in about 90 minutes a day, Monday through Friday. And then after that, I revise, do a final proof, send it off, send it off to some readers, send it off to my publisher, and that's how I write a book in six months. And is writing, is that your only position currently? Or are you also working other side jobs? Or do you have a main job that you focus on? 
I, I'm still a freelance writer, mostly in the personal finance space. I write a weekly financial advice column for Money Scoop, which is a division of Morning Brew. And I've just been hired to write a weekly advice column for Vox. So if you have advice, go to my website. It'll show you where to put it. Then I'll answer it. So what usually happens, a typical day for me looks like this. I wake up in the morning and I do some yoga practice and I make some breakfast and I say hello to Larry and I play the piano for about 90 minutes and then I come back to this old laptop and I do freelance writing for about 90 minutes and that's you know 1500 words I, I average about a thousand words an hour and then I have lunch and then I come back and I do Larkin writing for about 90 minutes again 1500 words give or take and then I go for a walk because woof about that time I need it. And then I come back and it's time for, you know, cleaning up the house and making supper and all of that. It's and there's an usually an hour in there. Actually, sort of right after the piano, before I start freelancing, that's where it goes, where I do the inboxy stuff, the emailing, the stuff, that kind of stuff. Um, but I spend about three hours a day on completely focused writing. No social media, no phones turned off, everything's turned off. Three hours, half of it's freelance work, half of it's Larkin work. Today, for example, this counts as Larkin work. I'm not going to finish this beautiful cocktail and go immediately to him. Um, <laughs> I also teach piano lessons. I also work with writers one-on-one -on, -one on their novels. I will read their work and offer my advice and thoughts. And these are, those are my side hustles. We'll say teaching is a side hustle if you want to call it that. So that is what I do. That's amazing. Ah, oh, shucks. Yeah, I mean, that just, well, we've we've also spoken to two other authors that we've been able to interview as well. And one of them is working full-time in order to write part-time. One of them just stepped away from, you know, corporate America to focus on writing, especially because, um, I think she's now been offered, you know, different um, contracts with getting more work out. So it's just it's interesting to see kind of where everyone as a writer is in their careers, whether that's still, you know, full time working and whatever the case may be in order to make themselves known. And I mean, it's obviously a lot of work that they're putting into it, but I think it's more impressive that, you know, they have all of these thoughts and work that needs to be done. And then somehow they're finding those increments of time that they're able to sit down and do it no matter what their outside career is looking like as well. So when I wrote the biographies of ordinary people, my first two books, which by the way, they're a millennial era little women that follows three sisters from 1989. I used to say from 1989 to the present, now I don't, from 1989 <laughs> to 2016. So those books I wrote in the evenings and on the weekends, mm -hmm. um, and it took me much longer to write those than it took me to write Larkin. First, because I didn't have the time, I was freelancing all day during those years all day and earning less money because I wasn't quite as far along in my career as I am now. So I was freelancing all day and then writing every minute I could in the night, you know. And it took longer. First, because I was new to the novel writing process. Second, because I was fitting it in after everything else. And third, because I didn't have the, what you might call institutional support of a publisher. Mm -hmm. And so if you are listening to this podcast and you are doing that right now, um, do not be discouraged because the fact that you are doing it right now 
gives you the opportunity to do something else in the future. And even if you don't, even if you never get picked up, I feel like I'm, this, this is definitely the cocktail. Even if you never get picked up, even if you remain self-published or even if you switch to a different kind of writing, you are developing now the discipline you need to do the work you want to do simply by getting it done at the end of the day. That is the, the you're getting it done. That's really yes. all that matters. Don't look at me and envy me and say, oh, I can't write till I have half a day to do it like Nicole does. Just just do it. That's right. all I got to say. This is definitely the cocktail. Next question. <laughs> Agreed. Cheers to that. Cheers. Cheers. Yes. Because mm -hmm. I, so I mean, I guess I don't want to call you out, Brie, but I know that you are also working on a little something on the side, too. So inspiration for you to keep I doing it. Just do it. <laughs> no, it's just nice to hear, though, and yeah, to keep to keep trying. My big thing is mm -hmm. I'm, I'm like, you just have to do it for yourself. Just like, mm -hmm. just get it done. Um, you know, there's right now, it's not like I want it to be on any list. I'm like, just just get it done. You can make it happen. Mm -hmm. and, and I think even if it is absolute trash, when I finish it, I'll still be just proud that I did it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> even if, you know, you know, if Megan and my husband are the only people that ever read it and that that's okay too. So no, that's really, it's just nice to hear. It's nice. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of a world too that unless you're really in it, I don't think people really understand the process a whole lot or all that is involved and how authors like you and I mean, every other author out there almost have worked to get to this point and the years and the everything that it's taken to do that. So I, I appreciate hearing it. And I know other people will too. Let's dive back into Larkin. Sorry Ooh. to tangent, tangent on me. A That's what bit. we do best though. I love yeah, it. We always tangent. Yeah, we do. We are really good at tangenting. <laughs> Um, Shakespeare, obviously, mm -hmm. in the title, huge theme of this book, and your background with theater and writing, I would assume you're a very big fan yourself, is that correct? Of, of theater? Yes. <laughs> but not of Shakespeare necessarily? Oh, no, of Shakespeare in particular, okay. absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's, yes, um, what's your personal favorite? My personal favorite? That's a very tricky question. Um, of the plays, I mean, I think that Hamlet is the most coherent in that there is very little in that play that you can cut without it affecting the entire rest of the play. And people have done it, but they always leave something out that they take a bit of the story out when they do it. Um, Romeo and Juliet has parts that you can cut without it affecting the overall story of the play in any really serious way. Midsummer Night's Dream has a little bit of extra. It's a little bit a little bit indulgent here and there, but it works really well. And it's so funny at the end that you kind of forget, you forget the slow bit in the middle by the time you get to the end and all the mechanicals are doing their fake little play within a play. Um, I always had a soft spot for Pericles. <laughs> That's one of the very unknown Shakespeare plays because it's essentially, it's essentially um, Super Mario Brothers. 
so Maybe that's where they got their inspiration. <laughs> so Pericles, Pericles, Prince of Tyre. Um, he is on a quest to find a missing princess. That is that is the plot, the entire plot right there. Pericles has to find the princess. And he literally, he goes to desert world. He goes to ice world. He goes to the world with the weird dragons that are going to chomp. He goes to water world. There's this whole scene that takes place on a ship that sinks. And so I'm reading this going, oh yeah, this is, this is, this is Mario Brothers. <laughs> you know? Um, but I would say if, if, I don't know, it's hard to say which one is best. And I don't think it actually matters. Reading the entirety of Shakespeare gives you a sense not only of what each play does, but how they work together and how Shakespeare improved as a writer from the beginning to the end. The Tempest is glorious, and it was written by a man who knew that he was at the end of his life. So, I think uh, Bree and I have a shared Shakespeare experience of uh, King Lear and oh, yeah. AC English. Oh, oh I have <laughs> very, very vivid memories of everything around King Lear. <laughs> mm -hmm. yep. Very, yes, we did. That was um, that we was a little, little informal in class production of King of Lear. Of course, <laughs> everyone does that. They sign everyone. Yes, it's mm -hmm. best way to get kids to learn is to force them to act. Yeah, right. <laughs> I have like a somewhat inappropriate story, but I'll tell, I'll try to keep it Please brief do. for King Lear. So in that class was another boy. Um, and what? You went to school with boys? <laughs> another boy. And um, there, like we, we did not, we did not run around in the same friend group, but while we were in this, in the midst of this production of King Lear, um, I had somehow like ended up on the weekend at a house that he was at and, uh, he was, sorry, mom, he was not sober and was very, very <laughs> naked at this house. And we, I mean, we're not friends, we're not close, whatever, but I had to show up then the Monday afterwards. And I think we were partnered together and I was just, Hey. So, so that was really cool over the weekend, I guess. I mean, I was so uncomfortable and so awkward of how, what do I say to this person? And I'm just this little high schooler who saw this random naked boy and now has to act out King Lear with him and doesn't know how to do that. Oh my goodness. Uh, so, very vivid memories about that experience. Man, yep. Well, I know who it is, so <laughs> I remember. I actually really enjoy when the two of you talk about your school stories on the podcast. So, oh, thank you. <laughs> we have a lot of them. <laughs> We've been friends for a long time, so yeah. got a lot of memories together. But yeah, that is King Lear is one of them. So, my goodness, we have that. Well, for your other characters, then actually, let me just take this into where did you get inspiration originally for Larkin and even for her name? Because I think. The name is so beautiful, but what, who, who, or what is your inspiration for the other characters as well? Sure. All right. So after I wrote the biographies of ordinary people, which is a very quiet book, you know, it's episodic. It's, 
it's old fashioned. It's like Little Women. It's like Anne of Green Gables in the sense that it follows these characters over a very long period of time and one tiny little thing happens to them in each chapter. And so I pitched it to agents at the time to traditional publishing agents, you know, and they all said the writing is beautiful, but we can't sell this. This isn't marketable. So after I published it myself, I thought, all right, Nicole, how can you write something marketable? How can you write something marketable? And my parents had introduced me to Agatha Christie when I was quite young. It was sort of the bridge between the children's section and the more adult section of the library. And I was always a fan of mysteries. I mean, I loved, you know, the Westing game. You know, later I loved the seven and a half deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, you know, all of these great mysteries. And, and I thought, well, I could, I could do that. I could do that. I could write a mystery. What would happen if I tried to write a mystery? And with Larkin, the name, all right. This is extremely nerdy. <laughs> so um, when I was young, I had a Super Nintendo. This, this dates me. I'm going to be turning 42 in November. So when I was young, I had a Super Nintendo. It wasn't even mine. We bought it off of one of our neighbors when he got a PlayStation. So we bought his old Super Nintendo. And I needed something to come up. I needed to name my characters, and I didn't want to name them Nicole. That would be kind of silly, especially because most of the characters were, were little boys. Like that little Link in Legend of Zelda is seems to be male. So calling Link Nicole would be silly, but calling Link Link would be generic. And so I started calling all of my video game characters Larkin because it was kind of like Nicole backwards, and it was gender neutral. Hmm. When it came time to create a detective heroine, I I liked the name. It's it's a little bit. It's got the hard k sound in it, so it's it's got that hard boiledness baked in. Um, and and again, I keep saying I'm not like Larkin at all. I can't be, but but Larkin Day is almost. Nicole D, my initial, right? Mm -hmm. Almost backwards, right? Sort of twisted around a little bit. Um, also, she gets to be named after Philip Larkin, who was one of my very favorite poets. Um, since her mother, since her mother teaches poetry, I thought, oh yeah, yeah, I named her after Philip Larkin. That's it. That's it. Definitely not after video games. Yeah. Not after. <laughs> not after Super Nintendo. Um, I love it. Annie's name came to be because people seem to think that I should have been called Annie. They also think I should have been called Michelle, but that name's a little bit too a little bit too dated for where I was hoping to go. So, and Annie also works because I loved the idea that she changed the way she spelled her name to have it rank higher in search engine results. Mm. There are actually there are very few Annies with an I and no E at the end, right? Mm -hmm. Out there to have so to have her do that sort of I, I liked that as it told me a lot about who she was and what she cared about. But um, Elliot, Elliot was basically because I asked Larry what I wanted is what he wanted his character to be called, and so Elliot it was. Um, Ed, Ed Jackson. You always do these searches, or one always does these searches, or I always do these searches, those baby name by year of birth. And oh, you can also yes. do it. 
you can do these searches by year of birth. You can do them by location. You can do them by ethnicity, right? What are people naming their babies? So, so Ed is a black man and he's probably about 35. So Ed Jackson makes sense for him. For sure. And that's something too, I was kind of curious. I mean, your cast of characters is so diverse, so inclusive. You're talking about a very broad range of people. And I was just curious, like, is that also inspiration from uh, your personal life or how, how did all of these, especially in um, your, your third book, I mean, how did all of them come about to you to create this cast? It's, it, it's interesting because I think the cast reflects for the most part the diversity that you're going to see in this type of area. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's there's something that goes on in, in Ode to Murder. There are, there are some comments about how there aren't a lot of people in the choir who aren't white. But by the time you get to Shakespeare in the Park with murder, there are many more people in the cast who aren't mm-hmm. white. And that is, that's, that's what's going to happen if you do, if you have a Shakespeare festival where you're hiring out and doing a nationwide casting call and hiring equity actors, you're likely to have the opportunity to cast a diverse group of people. So of mm-hmm. course, of course, that's what's going to happen because we're all hoping to give more opportunities to people who might not have had, you know, historically underrepresented groups. So right. that's why that's why the group of people in Shakespeare in the Park with Murder is is so diverse. And as before, I've had experience in the theater, so I, I, I know how these kinds of casts interact with each other. Mm-hmm. So that's my answer to that. The diversity is always something I want to work on. Um, I'm hoping to get a couple of outside readers for my next book, Murder on the Nerd Cruise, because it it deals with what, and I don't actually think it's called this anymore, but it deals with what about five years ago was called the blurred community for black nerds. Mm. So Ed gets involved with the blurred community. Okay. And as soon as I realized that of course he was going to do that, because if you put someone on a cruise, a nerd cruise, and there's a group of people who say, who say we are black nerds and we meet every day for lunch, you should join us. Of course he's going to. Right. So that means I need to talk to someone in that group and say, look, I've never actually been invited to that lunch. Right. So uh, <laughs> let's, um, what can I put in that would make it not completely implausible? What, what, what would Ed, that better question, what would Ed experience here? What can you right. share that, you know? And that's all good. That's, that's what I mean about taking situations I've been in and asking myself what other people would do. Mm-hmm. I, going on a nerd cruise, and I've been on many nerd cruises. I didn't even know that was a real thing. Yes, it's always <laughs> so real. It's so wonderful. You know, and I, would, I would not go to the nerd, to the black community lunch because I am not black, right. but Ed would. So what is it like in that room? That's Those are the questions I'm hoping to have some help answering in the next book. But the Shakespeare thing, you know, you look at you look at casts right now, and that's what you're going to see. And so that's what I tried to represent as best as I could. Definitely. I, I mean, I know, like, in the book, you even referenced that maybe people had issue with a Juliet that wasn't oh, oh, white. They do. And I didn't I know if that is that, that relevant. Is that, that so is, true? Okay. You get it all the time. I mean, what are we talking <laughs> about? Spider-Man being not white? People right. are caring about this? You know, and people... Like we were watching, so Larry and I were watching this musical theater retrospective the other day and they're like, 
ladies and gentlemen, the first black phantom, you know, and he comes out and he's gorgeous, but but also like and it doesn't it doesn't matter. I mean, mm-hmm. people people say it does matter because Gaston Leroux did not write the Phantom as a as a black character, and he actually did write a Persian character into the book. So you know, anyway, the point is, the point is that people people get upset about this. It's crazy that it's even still that that still is the case today. Right. I, right. I mean, really, just. I don't get it. I don't understand that. Why well, anyone would the Little Mermaid, didn't they? Didn't they get upset about the Little Mermaid? Yeah. Which I still haven't yeah. seen. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen either. I haven't mm-hmm. either. I really want to. Um, although I also heard it's like not on Disney Plus yet, which I don't actually have, but it's... Yeah. it'll we'll watch it. A year from now, it'll be free. That's yeah, right. wait, wait a year, it'll be free. Yeah, it's fine. I can wait till then. But I do want to see it. And people, you're right. People did make such a fuss about mm-hmm. that, which was just insane. Absolutely insane. Yeah. So no, this, this, and if you don't include that, you know, it's missing from the story. You have to have someone say, oh, rah, 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 you know, Shakespeare didn't mean for rah, 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 rah. And like, yeah, we don't know that. Right. Know. <laughs> right. You can't call him up and tell him. No, yes. no, and, and the original Juliet was played by a young boy anyway, so. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, how do you, Nicole, I, you, you kind of already touched on it, but how do you go and source the types of readers that you need to gain um, some of that additional information? Is that something that you seek out or, do, you know, does your publishing agency help with that? Or how do you go about finding those types of groups? I am I'm very lucky to have met a lot of people over my travels over my life. I've met many people. And because of that, I already know who I'm going to ask. And mm-hmm. it isn't it's not going to be cold calling. You know, these are people whom I've interacted with and have built relationships with. So it's not going to be, hey, ah, you know, you know, it's not going to be a cold call. I've never met you. Will you be my sensitivity reader? And I don't even think I'm going to say sensitivity reader necessarily. I'm going to say, look, you are my friend. Mm-hmm. And perhaps because of that, I could ask you a question about you as a person. Mm-hmm. And then I could steal your answer and put it in my book. But <laughs> and, and having that kind of trust, actually, talking to someone you know and trust gives you, I think, a better response than you might get from someone you don't know, someone you've hired offline or a cold, cold read. Um, because they're more likely to know what you're trying to do with the book and, and be able to respond specifically to that. So who knows? Who knows? I'll let, I'm sure I'll let people know how this goes. I have some yeah. response specifically. And I would say there's going to be a level of comfort too, where they'll mm-hmm. actually be honest with you right, and exactly. not just give you a vague answer that they may or may not think you want to hear. Mm-hmm. They, they'll know what direction you're going and be comfortable enough with you to actually give you an honest take an opinion on that correct correct and i would advise anyone who's who's seeking out readers to find those people who are going to be honest with you you know it's funny that you mentioned sensitivity readers because brie and i did a a narratives in the news about sensitivity reading not too long ago so it's it's cool to hear like a real because at first we were like we didn't even know this was an actual job so to know that you as an author like seek out those types of people it's it's full circle moment for us yeah (laughs) i I, I mean on the record i have not hired any sensitivity readers in the traditional sense but i have Mm -hmm. asked people 
you know, what do you think of this? Does this fly? Does this fly right. with your experience of the world? So that's that's my answer to that question. Yes. Yeah, it, it was a really interesting when we talked about it. I mean, just this rabbit hole that we kind of went down because there are so many different reasons to have a sensitivity reader. I mean, you don't mm -hmm. even have to label them that specifically, but just so many different reasons. But that was one thing we talked about is how if we were writing a book and did want to, then that it makes sense to have that perspective or a person that identifies however to to come in and give you that take so that your book is honest and true and any author with integrity would want that to be as authentic and true as possible. So right. But it was a very interesting uh, narratives in the news thing that we ended up diving down into all sorts of different, yeah. different conversations about that. So we've had some pretty thing, heated narratives in the news, I think. I think that was one of them. <laughs> and it, very unexpected with that, too, because initially when we started that segment of the show, we thought, oh, lighthearted. We'll talk about new books coming out. We'll talk about adaptations, which we, we do. And then also in our research, we always end up finding something darker. Yeah. Mm -hmm. More just like outrageous, like right. just something that is going on in today's world that you're just like, why is this happening? Who cares? <laughs> There's always someone to care. I'm, yes. Yes. It's just we found some good stuff, some treasures we, in there. <laughs> we have, we have. Okay, one thing I wanted to talk about a little bit. So you gave some advice for for writers and or anyone that's aspiring to be an author, but this is touched on in the book with AI. Ah, yes, yes. Okay, and and I think um, even your um, about page. I think you recently posted something about. You know, you're not being scared that AI is going to oh, take yeah. your job. <laughs> that's my, yeah. my website. Yes. The, yes. Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. using, yes. Why yes. I'm not worried about AI. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yes. That's correct. Let's talk about that because yeah. AI, it, you hear that in every single industry. I, I mean, you turn on the TV, anyone's talking about it. So can we touch on that a little bit? Yes. Because you incorporated yes. it into the story and, and you're not worried about your job. So. Oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. That is the wrong takeaway. Am I worried that the pieces I write, you know, like the how to do a balance transfer, that kind of piece I used to write for bank rate, right? That kind of piece is going to be written by a robot if it's not already. Mm -hmm. AI is going to take a significant chunk of my freelance work. But the point is not that AI is going to take some work, but it's also going to create new opportunities. All right. The thing that people are worried about with AI is that AI is just going to do everything better than humans. It's going to be so good at writing. AI is going to be so good at writing that no human will ever need to write again. But this is this is my argument to that. There have always been people, humans, real humans who are better at writing than you. One of them is Shakespeare and he's dead. And you'll never be better than him. But that has not stopped you. It has not stopped me. Agatha Christie existing does not stop me from writing mysteries. And if the AI is suddenly able to write better than anyone, any human has ever existed, that is not going to stop humans from continuing to improve their work. Just because it hasn't now. Right. We haven't stopped writing books. 
everyone's we haven't stopped making music i mean the beatles you know taylor swift wherever you want to draw the line and say this is the best musician of ever right jimi hendrix i don't know right whoever it is bach and people have not stopped people have not stopped they keep going because they say to themselves maybe i can do something worthwhile too worthwhile stuff makes you want to make more worthwhile stuff the garbage is what makes people want to stop making things mm. so that's my answer to that am i worried that ai is going to take my freelance work oh worried is not the right word but yes it's going to happen but the books even if AI writes other books that are good, there will still be space for other books that are good and mine can be some of them. Right, definitely. I think and I, I think, I mean, I feel like your characters, it was Annie and Elliot at the end of mm -hmm. this book who specifically said, AI can do all the surface level stuff, but eventually it's going to have to dig deeper. And those are, the, those are then the jobs and the roles that people have to fill in to get right. to that that second right. tier. Right. No, Gary, Gary Kasparov said it in his book about AI. He says, we have AI chess robots, but the only way the AI knows how to play chess so well is because they have analyzed billions of human games. If the humans had never played chess, the AI would not so well. And if the humans had never written, the AI would not be able to. And if the humans had never made art, we wouldn't have that, what's that art? Anyway, the art that where everyone has too many fingers, you know, that we wouldn't. And eventually it's going to have the right number of fingers, but it's using humans to make it stuff. Therefore, humans, mm -hmm, et cetera. I'm at the bottom of my glass, by the way. I'm at the end. <laughs> that's what, I mean, that's what we do. We just like yeah. to mm -hmm. have good conversations mm -hmm. and enjoy, enjoy a nice beverage when possible. So yeah. And sometimes it, the beverages fuel better conversations. This is true. Also very true. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say, I've considered myself very lucky because I got into freelancing when I did. Mm -hmm. And I got into fiction when I did. And I think it may be harder for other people to build the kind of career I've had simply because, for example, they're not going to hire you to be the personal finance columnist for Vox because I already exist, right? But right. but in a few years, there may be something new or, or it may be a robot. And the point is that that I, I, I worked hard, but I also was in the right place at the right time. So so that that's what I have to say about freelancing, I suppose. Now I really am at the bottom of my glass. You should ask me something else. <laughs> I mean, I like, I think Annie and Elliot talk about it too. And this is one thing I've just had in personal conversations is that with AI, it's, I mean, it's a little bit about pivoting where yes. you need to and, and being willing to adapt to some of that. But yeah, in other cases, like AI isn't replacing humans. And I hope not. Right. I mean, same, although that might be a book. <laughs> yeah, probably that, will that be. could be a really good inspirational piece for someone. <laughs> Actually, no, that is a new book coming up by Shortwave Publishing. My my publisher. There's a new book called I Am AI, and it will be released. Um, it's um, June twentieth. I've oh, gotten to read wow. an advanced copy, and it actually is about the scenario you described. What happens when AI fully replaces humans? Well, there we okay. Go. Mm -hmm. And what happens when the humans are encouraged to make themselves partially AI in order to compete? Oh my! So goodness. that's that's the pitch. 
that's the pitch. And of course, you've seen this new Apple, and I'm going to say new because it'll be quite old by the time this podcast airs. Apple, the new Apple VR headset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. My goodness. Anyway. Was a lot. All right. Well, talking about other books, anything that you've read recently that you really enjoyed or would recommend, or what's a book that you always recommend? Not necessarily a favorite, but just anything. Wow. Um, <laughs> I most recently I reread a book that I like very much called *The Courage to Be Disliked*. This is a philosophy book, so. You know, if you were asking me what mysteries, I'm like, I'm, I'm working my way through the Three Pines book. I love the Secret Book and Scone Society books. You know, I, I read pretty much, I read so many mysteries that the public library knows that I'm going to come in and check out 14 mysteries, right? Great. Um, but most recently, this past weekend, I read a book called The Courage to be Disliked. And it's about, it's about, um, Trusting yourself and trusting what is best for you and for the people around you, even though that might cause other people to dislike you, basically, is the sort of. So I liked that very much. I read, I reread that book about once a year. Um, besides that, we just got, you know, we got um, the Louis de Bernier trilogy Larry and I did to read together. I got a copy of the Poisonwood Bible sitting over here on my to-read list. Um, got a book about yoga, you know. Yeah. That, but most recently, I really do love this philosophy book. I recommend it to friends all the time. They they generally love it as well. There's a sequel called The Courage to Be Happy. So, so that's what I recommend. That in okay. my books. What are you all reading right now, aside from me? Well, for the podcast, we are reading, we just started Beautiful World, Where Are You? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, which I think for Megan, this is your, is this the first Sally Rooney you've read? It is, yes. Yes. Okay. Well, don't tell me anything because we haven't even talked about it. So I don't know what her, what her thoughts are on that. <laughs> and then I'm trying to think about what I read I've been reading anxious people mm, I love um, that one yep been reading that so we read a man called Ove for the podcast and after that I I already had anxious people sitting on my shelf so I was like well gotta jump into that but it uh it kind of takes a backseat to to podcast related <laughs> yeah fair enough related books so Megan what are you reading I'm making my way through um, Tiny Beautiful Things. Oh! Cheryl, Cheryl Stra- Strayed? Strayed? Mm-hmm. Strayed. Strayed. Um, so I'm working my way through that. Um, I, I accidentally saw they, they made a Hulu series, and I accidentally right. watched it without realizing that it was based on this novel. So now I've seen the show, but I'm going back to read the novel. And I've already realized, like, the show is not very much like the book at all. So I'm not the sure. The book is, isn't a novel. It's a collection of her advice yes. poems. Yes, exactly. Yes. Excuse me. Yes, I misspoke. It's, yeah, advice from Dear Sugar is the, right. the collection. Yes. Wow. So hmm. I'm that on the side of Beautiful World, Where Are You? <laughs> they actually would pair well together. Yeah, they would. Wow. 
That's, have you have you read? I'm assuming you've read Beautiful World. Where are you? Have you read any other Sally Rooney? Um, I okay. So here's my deal with Sally Rooney. <laughs> so I have peeked into most of Sally Rooney's books because they sit on that shelf. They sit on the special shelf at the library, the special shelf where they're all facing outwards, and you feel badly touching them because <laughs> you knew the librarians arranged them in this beautiful display, and you're like, oh, I'm ruining your display. So I'll flip through it. <laughs> The thing about Sally Rooney and me is that her characters are undergoing experiences. They're dealing with problems that I've already solved. They're much mm -hmm. younger than me at this point. And so so my interest in spending time with them is a little less than it would be for other books that I'm very interested in reading about people in their 40s and 50s. <laughs> you know, I mean, Sally Rooney, <laughs> I would have eaten up normal people when I was 21. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I am... 41 so not so much that's my thought on Sally Rooney but I think she's I think she is she is doing really really strong work mm -hmm. yes and uh, well one of the reasons we wanted to talk to read one of her novels for the podcast was because she her writing style and her books generate a lot of good conversation yes and either way people tend to have a very strong opinion of yes. her. One so, way or another. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, it's always, it's just, it's even interesting to read about her and, and all. So that was part of the reason we wanted to, and we went with Beautiful World, Where Are You? Because I'd already read her other, her other <laughs> words. So, um, even though we do reread some stuff for the podcast, wanted to make it a new one. So, yeah. so that's what we're, we're in the midst of, but uh, but yeah, but lately my focus was Shakespeare in the Park with murder. Well, there you go. Same. Oh, are you, Nicole, are you on Goodreads? I have not even looked that up, but I should. I am, which is to say my books are. I have okay. I have detached from all social media. I have a website at NicoleDeeker.com where I post regularly. And of course I answer emails that are sent to me, but I don't do Twitter, Instagram, mm -hmm. Facebook. I don't do Goodreads, but I am on Goodreads. So you can review Perfect. me if you want, but yes, no, I, I don't comment. Well, I, I'll have to, once your book comes out, I'll have to mark well, it thank as you. read because ah, I got to read it. <laughs> I, me too. And it comes out June 27th. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. Well, everyone, keep an eye out for that. Definitely make sure to check check out Shakespeare in the Park with Murder, as well as the rest of the Larkin Day Mysteries and everything else by Nicole Deeker. Nicole, it has been a true pleasure. Thank you so, so much <laughs> for joining us, for talking with us, for telling us about your life, your books, your writing process, your background it has just been so enjoyable and we truly appreciate your time well thank you it's been a pleasure and i hope you have a good i hope you have a good rest of your day now <laughs> all right well we, we always end the podcast by telling everyone cheers so cheers 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 <laughs> thanks for listening music for this podcast was created by remington haynes Join the conversation by emailing us at narrativesandnightcaps at gmail.com or visit our website, narrativesandnightcaps.com. Until next time, we hope you're enjoying a wonderful narrative.